Welcome to a special episode of the Eclectic Readers Podcast. I'm Meredith. And I'm Jeanette. Today, we're chatting with Victoria V.E. Schwab, a number one New York Times, USA, and indie best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including the Shades of Magic series, Monsters of Verity duology, City of Ghost, Vicious, and her newest book, Vengeful. Her work has received critical acclaim, been featured by Entertainment Weekly and the New York Times, been translated into more than a dozen languages, and has been optioned for TV and film. Hi, Victoria. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi. The bio makes me sound so fancy. Uh, you are, you are <laughs> pretty, pretty fancy. fancy. <laughs> I was just, we were just talking about how tired I was, and so I feel like fancy is the last word that comes to mind for myself right now, mm-hmm. but very, very glad to be here. All right. So we like to start out the podcast with just like some fun getting to know yeah. you questions. So whatever pops in your head, just... Just let us know. So this first one you probably already know. What's your Hogwarts house and what's your Patronus? (laughs) My my Hogwarts house is definitely Slytherin. My Patronus would be like an Arctic fox. Ooh, I like that. That is really awesome. So if you could have any pet, real or imaginary, what would you choose? Probably like a dire wolf. Ooh, yes. Yeah, a dire wolf. I was thinking it was going through really large dog breeds in my head because yes. they're like really large dogs. But then I was like, but why have a really large dog when you can have a dire wolf? Oh, that's fair. <laughs> what movie or TV series can you watch over and over again? The Princess Bride. Yes. I love that movie. I can probably <laughs> recite most of it line for line. I, yeah. just, I watched it growing up so many times. It's also one of those movies where every time it comes on television or every time I even stumble across it, I will stop and watch the whole thing. Yes. I completely exactly. understand. <laughs> I came to it later in life, but I know, I know. I had, my childhood was a little odd. I just watched a lot of Disney movies. But <laughs> yeah. um, I love it, too. It's so I love it. All right. So do you have any non-bookish hobbies? Um, I fence. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I used to be a competitive fencer. So I was a competitive soccer player for 13 years and accrued quite a number of injuries that told me from a pretty young age I wasn't going to be able to go on to play it uh, for a profession. And so when I was in high school, I switched about midway through high school to competitive fencing. And I've actually been to the nationals, to uh, a lot of the higher competitions. And I don't get to train as much as I would really love to because of travel for work, because it's not like you know, keeping three-foot-long steel swords in your travel bag is not super convenient. Yeah. Um, I hear they don't like that. They don't like it, and I also, like, I'm not home enough to train as much mm. as I would like, but I do still consider it one of my hobbies. Also, really, yoga and fitness, anything else, my job is so stationary and so static uh, that I try really hard to find ways to be active. That's really cool. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever met a fencer in real life or not. <laughs> See, also why I love The Princess Bride so yes, much. Or really, yes. but it's it's if P then Q the other way around because mm-hmm. I found The Princess Bride and became so obsessed with Inigo Montoya that yes. that's what started me out as a fencer when yeah. I was 14. That's that true. That sense. whole fencing scene is so amazing. And I'm sure, you, have you oh, read? Oh, I've listened to, yeah, yeah. to As You Wish, so I know that they actually brought in those world-class fencers yes. and that they, the actors became so proficient that they had to make the the action scene longer because they ended up doing it so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yes. read, I loved that aspect of As You Wish. Yes, and the audiobook was great. So oh, if you so haven't good. listened to that, <laughs> listeners, you should. Yes. Um, all right. 
If you could pick a character from another author's book and put them into one of your own books, who would you choose and why? I would choose either the Darkling or Kaz Brecker. Both Lee Bardugo characters, I clearly have a thing for some of her uh, more damaged male characters. They're so good. They're so good. They're so good. I think Kaz Brecker would fit really nicely into the Shades of Magic world. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine him having magic, too, along with all of his stuff? Well, people already put Inej and Lila together from Six of Crows and Darker Shade of Magic. So, like, as teams, like, they're Mm -hmm. like, I would like to see this crossover. I would really love to see Kaz Brecker and Kel. Yes. Something we should try and make happen. So, what book trope can you not get enough of? The inner demon. Like, the idea of something... It's not even just a book trope. It's an everything trope. I remember growing up and watching Smallville and being so excited for Red Kryptonite, you know, Clark Kent. I love the idea of characters who are either body-sharing, like sharing their body with another entity or spirit or identity. Uh, I grew up on an anime that did that as well, too, that I'm totally blanking on right now. Samurai Deeper Kyo, that's what it was called. And he had the same problem or the same affliction. I love it in books. I love... I love it in all forms of media. Yeah. And I think we see that a little bit in some, in some of your yeah, books. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. I think that's really going to relate to some things we're going to talk about. <laughs> I think so, yeah. So let's switch gears into some craft questions. Sure. You're writing your first comic series called The Steel Prince. Uh, so that's a prequel to the Shades of Magic trilogy, right? It is. It's set 30 years before the start of A Darker Shade of right. Magic. And that follows... Maxim Maresh, right? Before he becomes king. Yeah, it follows a a fairly antagonistic character from the Shades of Magic books. Mm -hmm. The king of London uh, is Rai's biological father, Kel's adopted father, and not the easiest person to get along with. And so this actually looks at Maxim when he was Rai's age. Great. So how has that process been different from writing novels, and why did you decide that this was the way to tell his story? Uh, it's completely different. <laughs> it's really like learning an entirely new craft skill, to be honest. The, the, the novel writing format and the comic script format are really just at opposite ends of the creative spectrum, but I am a fairly visual writer, so I think I visualize my scenes before I write them down. I play them out in my head like movies, and I'm a pretty dialogue-heavy writer, and so those two things really allowed me, I think, uh, to have a slightly smoother entry than most, but I think what so many people don't consider is the sheer format difference is the difference between writing a 500-page novel and thinking of things in chapters or scenes and working on you know, four issues, each 22 pages long for a total of 88 pages plus extra matter, wherein you have to be aware of how every right-hand page ends because that's your turning page. Mm -hmm. And so there are certain ways you have to break or not break the action to really make sure that your readers can stick with you and not get lost the way things pace out. Really, it's, it was an education and learning how much material goes on a page. How do you think of something in a 22 page installment? And it's really a lot of trial and error for me. It's definitely a learning curve. Mm. That's really interesting. I yeah. never would have thought about that whole yeah. turning. So thing. every left and right function as a spread, and so you obviously move across the spread really differently mm-hmm. than you'd go from a right to a left page. That's exactly. true. Because you read a lot of graphic novels, but yeah. yeah, I guess you never really think about it, but it is. Yeah. If it got broken up, you would... Yeah, yeah, you have to be It's a thing where you don't <laughs> yeah. notice it at all if you're if it's being done well, and you notice it a lot if it's being done badly. So That's true. That makes sense. All right. Well, you are, this is an understatement, but you are such a master of characterization. Thank you. Um, how do you write such deeply developed characters? 
Um, I treat them like people. I try to make sure that every character that I write, whether they show up for a paragraph or a page or an entire book, could be pulled out of that story and put into their own and function as a central character. So if I don't feel like every character in my book has enough depth and enough dynamism that they could be the main character of a different book in that world, I won't write them, mm. you know? So it's just a challenge. And I don't think that's, that's not me saying that I go and I write 50 pages of backstory for every single one of those characters. I don't. I simply make sure that they're three-dimensional. I make mm. sure that they have... Um, I ask myself three questions with each character, which is what do they want, what will they do to get it, and what do they fear? Mm-hmm. And I feel like those three questions, if I know the answers to that for the character, I know quite a lot about what drives them. Yeah, that's true. That is really cool. Yeah. And I think it shows through it definitely in your work. Shows. It yeah, really does. So now you've written middle grade, young adult, adult. You're working on comics. Yeah. How does your writing process change depending on the type of story you're writing? And how do you bounce back and forth between all of them? Because you're never just working on one thing. (laughs) It's really interesting. I will say it probably changes less than people assume it does. I write for a version of myself. Sometimes that version is 12 years old. Sometimes that version is 19. Sometimes it's 31, as I am now. Um, I will say I struggle to balance between any projects, regardless of whether I'm jumping age group or genre or what have you. I just always have this at least about a week of extricating myself from one thing to fully get into the next thing. I do a fairly deep dive into my books. I don't know what the um, like the writing equivalent of method acting is, but mm-hmm. I definitely become fairly emotionally entrenched in yeah. the work. And just because you're holding up a book inside your head and then you're not, you're not putting it down piece by piece. Like you don't get to set it down until the very end. So it's something I definitely struggle with. But as far as how my writing changes or how the process changes from book to book, Almost not at all. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Although I like that idea that you're writing for a different version of yourself. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. It creates, I think, hopefully, a sense of stylistic constancy between the works where a lot of people will pick up my middle grade, then they'll pick up my adult books, and they'll say that they both feel like me, and they feel like me because I'm writing for that version of myself, because I'm writing something which would hopefully always appeal to me. Yeah. Well, and I I think I've heard you say before, you don't write down in your middle grade. Not at all. Yeah. Which I think people appreciate. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I would die to ask this question. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, And we did touch on this a little, I think. Um, But in many of your stories, you explore the ideas of what makes a monster or a villain. Mm -hmm. So in Vicious and Vengeful, you're exploring the idea of supervillains versus heroes. And are they villains? Are they heroes? Mm -hmm. Or are they really monsters? And in the Monsters of Verity duology, you have literal monsters, one of whom wishes to be human. Can you tell us about how you deconstruct that idea of what a monster is? And what do you hope your readers take away from reading those types of stories? I mean, I think what I'm exploring is the idea that humanity itself in its three-dimensional form is fairly monstrous. Like, in the Monsters of Verity series, the monsters aren't as monstrous as the people. The people are the reason for the monsters. In the villains' books, it's really this deconstruction of the idea of what is a hero, because they're all just flawed people. And so the theme with that book is that when you give a person superpowers, they don't become a superhero. They just become a person with superpowers. If anything, they're more inclined to be a bad person because they now have not only petty grievances, but a way to act out on them. (laughs) So I think what interests me more than monstrosity, perhaps, is flaw Mm -hmm. and weakness and really corruptive forces. 
I'm really interested in the idea that most people are, really everyone, is cast in shades of gray. So I just don't really believe in good people in that way, which sounds, I know, like a very, very um, cynical outlook on it, but I don't mean it that way. I think it's more just that I'm not really interested as a creator in exploring strengths so much as weaknesses. I think weaknesses and flaws are what make for interesting characters. I mean, mm -hmm. I know there's that quote, like, the crack is where the light shines through, but I also find, like, the cracks are where we actually get to the core of an identity. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. And that's why a lot of people like these, you know, like, mm -hmm. the, the anti-heroes and things like that, because they're just sometimes more interesting but than I the good guys. I think it's really important that sometimes we lean into the anti-hero tropes for the wrong reasons, and we let them just be um, anarchic. Mm -hmm. And I'm less interested in anarchic characters than I am in characters who have a deep-seated motivation. Mm -hmm. It's just that. Like, they're just, they, they're, they're selfish and self-serving and ambitious to an absolute flaw and to the detriment of the people around them. So I don't ever really want my, my villains to be black and white either. Mm -hmm. I want the, and I don't want the antiheroes to just be like, I'm, it's because I'm a loner. I'm like, yeah, but why do you feel like an outsider? Why do you feel like you don't belong in this world? Mm -hmm. um, and then what are your reactions to that? So I think I just like want them to be deeply flawed humans. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to be pondering this. You'll, you'll be hearing from me on Twitter later because right. I'm going to be intaking. In yeah. Picking that in. Yeah. yeah. That's what I meant. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. So what's been the hardest book for you to write and why? I know. My critique partner is here, my beta reader, and I just heard her chuckle in the corner because I feel like every, whatever book I'm writing now mm -hmm. seems to be the hardest. <laughs> the hardest. There are exceptions. I do think that my sequels are, my, so my book twos, whether it's a book two in a duology or a book two in a trilogy mm -hmm. uh, or a book two in an open series, is always really hard for me because that pressure to um, not simply be a continuation of book one, to write something newer and bigger, I'm always very aware of it. I will fully admit that Vengeful is probably to date the hardest one I've ever, because I, it wasn't the hardest one I've written, it was the hardest one I've ever rewritten from scratch over the course of two months. So yeah. it was that process which really was, um, has made this entire tour feel like a victory lap and a really yes. beautiful thing. Uh, right beneath Vengeful is Gathering of Shadows and The Unbound, which are probably tied mm -hmm. for second, but again, they're all second books. That's true. They're yeah. all of them second books. I struggle with second books every single time. I get in my own way. Well, Gathering the Shadows was probably my favorite of the uh, three in the trilogy. So <laughs> glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear it. Because it's hard, right? You yeah. know, you always feel like the second book in a trilogy can kind of have this slump. I never um, want it to feel that way, though. Yeah. I want each and every one of my books to feel like they're taking on their own challenges. They have their own mm -hmm. arc. And I think that that's the least natural arc for a second book in a series and probably one of the reasons I struggle with it so much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, speaking of Vengeful, you're <laughs> currently on the tour for Vengeful. Yeah. Long-awaited sequel to Vicious, and it just made the New York Times bestseller list, so congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> Lucky number seven. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit more about this series just for a minute. So Vicious was a really intriguing supervillain origin story. What inspired it? And did you always plan to write Vengeful? Yeah, um, oh, I'm saying um so much more often than usual, but I wanted to write Vicious, and I always hoped that it would be a series. 
but it was my first adult novel. And I was very aware of the business side as well as the art. And so I wrote Vicious so that it could stand alone for as long as it needed to. I obviously hoped I would be able to come back to it, but I needed it to be able to function as a standalone so that it would be the most satisfying book possible. Then about two years after Vicious came out, my publisher, Tor, came back and very graciously said, okay, you can, you can write the sequel you wanted to write. So it was always intended. I always say that Vicious has a cliffhanger of an ending. Some people feel like the last page is a period, and some people feel like it's an, an ellipsis, but I always felt like it was a cliffhanger. I'd always really wanted to come back. The problem was I had to finish Shades of Magic first, and mm-hmm. so they said, you can write a sequel, and it can come out after Conjuring of Light. What I didn't realize was going to happen at that time is that Conjuring of Light would be my best-received book at number 13 of my entire career. <laughs> And that would create a level of paralyzing pressure when it Mm. came to write the book that would follow A Conjuring of Light. So not only did it have to follow Vicious, which was for many, like it's my little cult following one, but for Mm. many their favorite book uh, of my work and of many works, Mm. but it also had to follow Conjuring of Light, which was my best-selling and best-received work. And so I was extraordinarily daunted, and a combination of that and this pressure to be perfect. This perfectionism that I impose on my own work led to me writing the first draft of it and really clinging to a lot of the things that had made Vicious strong. So the very first version of Vengeful was in true form a continuation of Vicious. It stayed centered on Victor Vale. It really continued the themes of Vicious, but it didn't grow from it. Mm. It was the one thing I said I never wanted to write, which was a simple direct sequel, one that was just a redux. And so I turned the book in on December 29th of last year, and on January 2nd, my editor called, and she said, if you had written this book two years ago, it probably would have gone to print with almost no edits. This is a very good book. She said, it has not grown as much as you have. And she said, now you have a really difficult decision, and she's like, it's a decision I can't make for you. It's a decision you have to make, because there's a story in here folded into the book that you have written that Mm -hmm. I think is the book you should write. And then she provided her argument for it, and it was a very sound argument. And I went away and I cried for a few days, and then I deleted my entire book and started again. All what would be 115,000 words, uh, gone. And it's the hardest decision creatively that I've ever had to make, and it was the best decision in retrospect that I ever made But there was a huge amount of faith operating there in my editor, in the process, and in myself. And a lot of times when I really didn't have that faith, when a lot of times when I I struggled for those two, two and a half months that I was drafting it again, thinking, I really hope this will all have been worth it. How terrible would it be if I did all of this work? And nobody was any the wiser, and also nobody felt like it was worth it. And so there was a huge amount of insecurity really in this process that I think has made Vengeful all in all the hardest book that I've ever written. That said, it is also the book I am proudest of. Yeah. And we're proud for you. Honestly, like watching you through social media this past (laughs) year, when you said that you were, yeah, you were pretty much having to trash that whole first book. I I just feel like probably a lot of people like just felt for you. Well, this was also the difficulty, right? I had, uh, Vicious was written in total privacy and in total secrecy. I didn't tell anyone I was writing it, not even my agent, until it was already written. I just wanted a project for myself. Vengeful was written in a glass box with a lot of people watching. And I felt I had been very open about so much of my creative process for so long by the time that happened that it would have been really disingenuous for me not to involve my readers 
in the process mm-hmm. for me to try and pretend like everything was fine. I did that for my own sanity and because that's a promise that I had really made to those followers that they were going to understand the creative process as it applied to me. I've been really, really humbled by the emotional response from readers to seeing what I went through and for that, how that impacted them holding the final book and knowing what went into it. Yes. I just finished it last night oh. and oh, <laughs> it was so good. Yeah. Um, I'm I know. so grateful. It's just, you could see your blood, sweat, and tears and your yeah. soul put into this. The, the book is written in red ink. The yeah. book is definitely <laughs> written like with my actual, actual blood. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit. I mean, this does come up in Vengeful, but I think it was a, a bigger thing in Vicious. We constantly see Victor Vale blacking out words in books, yeah. especially his parents' self-help books, which was <laughs> a really interesting um, yeah. you know, idea with that. Um, I've heard the term blackout poetry used mm-hmm. for it. I don't know if you have a term for it or not, but what inspired you to add that element in to Vicious? It was one of those I kind of just stumbled on. I knew I wanted to give Victor a humanizing quality. I wanted to give him a little crack through which you could see a neurosis. Mm-hmm. A neuro- neurosis in this context is kind of like a weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's so composed about everything in his life that I liked that that pressure has to get out somehow. Mm-hmm. We all have that valve. And for him, it's such a measured and meted valve because he's also symbolically taking possession of other people and of other people's work. He is overwriting it. Mm -hmm. He is controlling the narrative. And if Vicious is really a book about, for Victor and Eli, about control. Yeah. About them taking control. Conversely, Vengeful is a book about Victor and Eli losing control. Very much so. (laughs) and, And for the women in Vengeful, I know this is a tiny bit off course, but for the women in Vengeful, it is a book about taking back control Mm -hmm. when the world has tried to strip it from you. And so, but yeah, for Victor and the blackout style, which is all done, so there's a letter in the back of Vengeful that I did that is a Victor letter where it takes the first page of his first chapter in the book and creates a blackout poem out of it. But I wanted to show that when I'm writing these blackout poems within the context of the book, I'm not cheating. I'm not making the poem and then forming words around it. Like I genuinely, and it is, I challenge everyone to go and do it with a magazine, something, because it's really ridiculously cathartic to just go through and be committed because it's something you're doing in pen. It is unchangeable. You're Mm -hmm. bound to it while you're doing it. And it becomes a kind of meditative exercise. Yeah. That's so awesome. And it's giving me so many ideas. I'm going to pick up a magazine today. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I challenge everyone to try it at least once. It's very weirdly soothing. That's awesome. Okay, so you recently quoted a tweet that asked how to tell you're in a V.E. Schwab book by saying, there are no heroes, the girls are Slytherins, and the boys are Hufflepuffs, and everything hurts. Yeah. So I gotta ask, are Eli and Victor really Hufflepuffs? No. Vicious vicious is the exclusion to that principle. In fact, there's only one Hufflepuff, there's only one non-Slytherin in the entire series, and that's Mitch. Mitch. Yes. Mitch is a Hufflepuff. I was going to say, when I first thought about that, Mitch was the only one I could think of. You know what? A lot of people who've only read Vicious will argue that Sydney is too, and I'm like, no, you met her too young. Sydney is growing into her Slytherin-ness in a very slow way, Mm -hmm. but she is in no way a Hufflepuff. Um, She's a budding necromancer. This child is not... Uh, she is Victor's protege in the strictest psychological terms here. Mitch is the only Hufflepuff. Yes. But I love Mitch, too. I love him a lot. (laughs) I love him a lot. Mitch and Dole. 
Yes. Oh, oh. Speaking of big dogs, right? Yes, I know. My Franken dog. The dog who will always die at least once per book but will never stay dead. That is my promise Thank to readers. Thank you for that. I, I can't handle when He's going to start probably like decaying a little bit. Like yeah. He's definitely going to hit a Franken dog status because <laughs> there's an argument. I mean, there's a question to be posed here, which is um, Sydney resurrects the dead, but what happens if she tries to resurrect something that has just died naturally? Mm, you know, is it right. going to just like, how long can she yeah. prolong a life for something True. that should just die? Hmm. So I think at some point we'll probably see Sydney test that theory. Mm. Third, third book. <laughs> or a short story, or I don't know, like my own personal exercise. <laughs> sure. or, you know, no pressure. I, know, right? I have told readers that uh, while I really hope to do a third book at some point, I will never do these books closer than five years together. Mm. So, like, the entire next threads, the ne- entire next Shades of Magic arc, Threads of Power, will come out before another one of these books, yeah. if one of these books does come out. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Mm. People are always like, five years? I was like, that's exactly how long it was between Vicious and, yeah, it is. and Vengeful. Because you know? I read Vicious, I think about a year, year and a half after yeah. it came out. Still three and, and a half I, years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it, when I read it at the time, you had yeah. announced that you were doing vengeful and I was raving about it to everybody. I was like, you gotta read this book. You gotta read this book. And then it has been. It's been a while. It's been a long time. That's okay. Definitely worth the wait. Thank you. Oh, definitely. (laughs) And it's not like we're not still getting books from you. Exactly. It's not like I'm now being like, hey guys, I need to go take a five year nap. (laughs) I think I would be very entitled to that, but I'm not gonna do it. I really burned it. But (laughs) I won't do it though. Uh Okay, so uh, we got a couple more questions about Vicious slash Vengeful. So in Vengeful, um, people who have read it have definitely been having some feelings about Eli's backstory. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And we're, you know, we're trying to keep things spoiler free. But why did you decide to include that in the second book? It was a very long-standing promise I made that if there was a second book, I would change people's stances on Eli. Anyone who's read my Shades of Magic series should not be surprised by this because I have... I like to choose a long con character, I call them. Someone, so in Shades Magic, it was Holland. Right. And basically what the character's purpose in terms of this arc is, is to prove to the reader that while we judge about people, how we judge them is entirely dependent on how much we know. The less we know about a character, the easier it is to judge them. Mm-hmm. That's how Holland goes from being a villain to an antagonist to a protagonist. Because when you meet him in book one, all you have to judge him on are his present actions. And his present actions are terrible. Just as when you meet Eli in Vicious, all you have to judge him on is his present actions. And they are really horrible. And it's not that I'm trying to make anybody like Eli. What I'm trying to do is make people understand that we are all a product of our environment and our upbringing and Mm -hmm. what the world has done to us. I liken Eli's character to a blade that has been heated and hammered. Mm. Like he is not someone who was formed by a single blow. This is, and I think if I had only included the first home, the first flashback, um, I'm not sure it would have been enough to move the needle for many people, but I wanted to show that Eli is a character who has systematically been beaten into his shape. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's, it's empathy, not sympathy. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, that's how I took it. Yeah. Yeah. You also introduced some new kick-ass women, Marcella and June. What inspired their storylines and characterization? So they were the story within the story that my editor really prompted me to go deeper and find them. They were side characters. They were villains, but they were not the central narrative. 
And it was only once I started diving into that narrative and really letting Marcella center stage mm-hmm. that I realized how much she really liked being in the center stage of the <laughs> she narrative. Has a lot to say. She has so much to say, but also, you know, I'm writing this in 2017, 2018. She is the absolute embodiment of female rage. She's someone, you know, all of us. And I was saying to somebody earlier that it's easy to say how timely this book is, but the fact is, this book would always be timely. Mm-hmm. This is a book about the microaggressions enacted against women every single day and the way that they build. And it's about three characters, if you include Sydney, three female characters who are having to live in a world that either infantilizes them, uh, judges them, hurts them, kills them, and the ways in which these women take that power back. So you have Sydney, who has aged from 13 to 15, but is not physically aging because of her power. It's a strange side effect of it. And so she's being infantilized both by strangers and adversaries and by her own found family. You have June, who has literally given up her identity in order to ensure that she can never be hurt again and is therefore invulnerable as long as she is never herself. And you have Marcella, who is the embodiment of hell hath no fury. And she's also a look at what happens when, you know, she is beautiful. She is a stunning woman. And because of her beauty, nobody ever assumes that there's ever more to her. Mm-hmm. And and it's something that she is definitely subject to the most obvious of the microaggressions everywhere she goes at all times. And I really relished writing these characters. I really relished the catharsis of it. I loved being able to put us as readers through moments that almost everyone who is either minority or female has endured at some point being talked over, talked down to, being abused psychologically or physically. And these are the women who we get to at least find avatars in that get to kind of take the world back. Yeah. That was so good. (laughs) So it's uh, time for us to wrap up. Uh, I know this might be a long list, but what projects are you currently working on? (laughs) Well, The Steel Prince comes out this week. I don't know by October 10th, I believe Mm -hmm. it is. October 10th. And that is going to be four issues. So October, November, December, January, with the paperback bind up in February. So I'm doing the final finessing on the third issue of that right now. I am revising the second City of Ghosts book which is set in Paris and comes out next year, and I'm really excited about that. And I am working on my next adult book, which for a nice little palette cleanser, a change of pace, is a standalone called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. It's a book I've been working on for, or planning for the last seven or eight years. Wow. I finally, I waited. I waited until I felt like I was a good enough writer, until I felt like I was ready to write it, and I'm finally ready. And so that should be coming out in spring 2020. Fantastic. So when we, um, we interview people, we like to ask them, what is their eclectic pick? So it's a weird book that you love or a book that doesn't get the attention you feel it deserves. Yeah. What's your eclectic pick? There is a really, really weird book, and I think it's either love it or hate it. I love it. My editor does not, and we both feel just as passionately. <laughs> it's called The Library at Mount Char. Oh, that one is I've, very divisive. I, I haven't read it yet. I, I heard, love yeah, it. It checks every sides. single one of my boxes, and it infuriates as equal number of people as love it. But yeah. I love it, and so I'm always telling people to like give it a shot. Yeah, give it a shot. All yeah. right, well, listeners, give that one a shot then. Definitely. <laughs> Uh, and where can people find you on social media? Uh, I live inside the internet, so that is not difficult. And luckily, I also have the exact same name across every single platform. So if you type in V.E. Schwab, 
V-E-S-C-H-W-A-B to Instagram, Twitter, uh, I'm everywhere. Nice. YouTube. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you again for chatting with us. We so appreciate you being here. Yeah. We've been very thank excited it's been about a great this. talk. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. I feel very bad. You'll hear some repeats of some of that, I'm sure, at the talk today because a lot of the questions you asked are really wonderful and very applicable, and I'm sure readers will ask them there too. Uh, we have no problem. Okay, we will, you will hear that I have, I have cultivated my sound bites over the last 10, 10 to 15 days. By then, I might have more questions. So <laughs> great. It'll be okay. Uh, thank you all, you eclectic readers out there, for listening. Check us out on Twitter at Eclectic Read Pod or on Litzy at Eclectic Readers. Listen to past episodes on our website, eclecticreaders.fireside.fm, or subscribe to us in your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. Look for relevant links in our show notes, and let's shelve this until next time. <laughs> <laughs>